Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Every week, we strive to present the truth and love of Jesus to the heart of our community through music, art, and public speaking. Today, we continue with our study through 1 Corinthians, and we hope you are encouraged by this message. Let's get started. Well, uh, welcome to Renaissance. Good morning. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the leaders here. And I want to open with this. Um, I've been praying for you. Right? What does that mean? I I don't know specifically. I I will say this. I I pray for you often. Um, Sometimes it just happens in the middle of my day. I've been pumping gas before and had thought of you. I don't mean like you specifically, but just generally, I think of the people that attend this church And God so moves me to pray. And I just want you to know, when I walked into my office this morning, I mean, I have a routine that I do. It begins with coffee, amen, right? And then I move into my Bible and I do some other stuff. But before I could get into my routine, I was just burdened. Is that the right word? I just felt like I should pray for you guys. And and the words that came out of my mouth, and yeah, I'm a weird guy. I pray out loud sometimes, even when I'm by myself, (laughs) right? I'm praying out loud, and these are the words that came out. God, I thank you for them. What does that mean? (laughs) I, I don't know, really, except this. I'm thankful that God is doing something in your life. I'm not thankful that he's allowed us to become friends or whatever. We got become acquaintances. That's fine. I love that too. I'm just thankful for you and for God, for you, that God is in fact doing something in your life. And I don't need to, to know what's happening exactly. I just know this. The fact that you're here simply means either you can't say no to your friends very well, or, <laughs> or maybe God is tugging on the heartstrings of your heart. And so as I was sitting in my office, just thinking about today, the things that I want to talk about, I just began to pray, God, thank them. God, bless them. God, continue to do whatever you've already begun to do in their life. And and amen and amen. I'm saying all of this in my office. And does it sound weird when I tell you this? It's okay to say yes. (laughs) Because, well, sorry. I think it is. (laughs) I think it is weird. In fact, I have to be honest with you. When I first became a Christian, when I first started going to church, I thought a lot of the things that people did in church was a little weird. I became a Christian when I was 26. I'd been out on my own for a little while. I won't bore you with the details, but my life wasn't exactly what you'd call the typical American dream life. I found myself in, found myself in all kinds of I won't bore you with the details, and I'm trying to give you the details. So what I'm trying to say is God saved me even from myself when I was 26 years old. Praise the Lord, yes? So I I fell in love with Jesus. I fell in love with the church. I started going to the church. And and what I found is I had no idea what actually happened behind the doors on Sunday mornings. I had no clue. I did not grow up in a family that went to church. It was foreign to me. In fact, the only thing I knew about church, I learned probably from, from movies or TV, or from books or magazines. And I'll be honest with you, they don't paint the church in the best light. Would you agree some days? We're a bunch of crooks, some would say, right? So I started going to church and here's one of the first things that I noticed is they prayed an awful lot in the church. (laughs) I remember when Renaissance first started and I would have to apologize for the prayer. And I used to say this, well, you came to church, you'd expect us to pray, wouldn't you? Because I felt like it needed to be talked about. 
I didn't know that's what people did. I thought prayer was just the obligatory thing that an uncle did before every holiday meal. I didn't know that it was like it was a real part of life for the Christian. And I didn't know that when they prayed, they didn't pray as if they're just vocalizing some words to an ethereal God who is often some distant planet or some distant faraway place. But in fact, they were praying in such a way that it was as if God was sitting in the room with them. They're praying to a God with petitions, requests, concerns, issues, cries for help. And in those prayers was the hope that God would not only hear them, but had the power to respond in the way that they hoped that he would. Ah, this was not the Christianity that I saw coming out of Hollywood. This is not the Christianity that I heard from some of my own friends who were Christians. This appeared to be something altogether different, but it was weird to me. They prayed before service, sometimes in the middle of worship service, sometimes at the end of worship service, sometimes the guy who, like me, would pray, and then they'd close the service in prayer. I'm like, oh my gosh, do they ever stop praying? (laughs) To be truthful, we don't. (laughs) We pray all the time. The other weird thing that I noticed was that they, um, they sing out loud, (laughs) which is so strange, (laughs) right? They raised their hands in church. That was new to me. I'd never seen that before. In fact, the only time I saw people ever raise their hand is when they were um, like in war movies, they're surrendering to the enemy, right? Or something like that. Or you see little toddlers running around hoping that maybe daddy would pick them up. And then in the middle of a worship gathering one time as the person in front of me raised his hands, I had got it. He is surrendering. He is saying, no more do I want to live my life. No more do I want to be in charge of my domain or do all the things. Lord, I'm not going to make all the decisions for my life. In fact, I yield myself as I surrender myself to your will. So when I saw people raise their hands, it was an act of submission and surrender. And also those people who are so desperate to be picked up and loved on by their heavenly father. I see that as normal now, but at first it was weird. They said Jesus an awful lot. And not like the way you say it when you can't find your car keys way. (laughs) The good way. (laughs) Jesus, a person, a name, the son of God, the Messiah, the chosen one, the redeemer, the savior, all the things that we talk about in church. They mentioned him constantly. In fact, if you're visiting Renaissance, I hope if there's but one thing you take away, it is this, Jesus to us, is a big deal. In fact, if you take nothing else away from this place, it is that Jesus Christ is a big deal to us. We believe that if we continue to make much about Jesus and all the things that he does for us and has done for us, then the Bible says if we exalt him, which just means to lift him up, to praise him, to whatever, to reveal him to the world around us, then it will be God who will draw more people to his son, Jesus. So if we exalt him, if we lift him up, then people will come to know Jesus. And if I had a goal in life, it is this, that people would know who Jesus is. Last weird thing, and we'll move on. (laughs) We could talk about weird things in church all day. It's like my hobby, I'm just saying. Um, But the other strange thing that I found um, interesting in church is they did this thing where they took an offering at church. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now, we, we don't necessarily 
pass a plate here in the church, but we do have giving boxes in the back. Maybe you're new to church and you're walking in and you're wondering what that was about. Um, it's where we take our offering. But in some churches, in the church that I started going to, they took time in their service where they, they passed this little silver dish uh, around the, down the rows and people would put money in it. And I thought it strange because I'd never been a part of a group that had ever done that. Well, except back in college, the only time we would take a collection, so to speak, was when we were out of pizza and or beer. I'm just saying. <laughs> Mind you, I didn't get saved till I was 26 years old. Remember that part? And I went to college way before that. I guess I should put that out there too. So this is before I was a Christian. Talking about this collection or offering um, allows me to springboard into what uh, we're going to be talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 today. So one of the things that we love to do here at the church is we love to open the Bible we love to pick a book, and we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians for the last many months. In fact, we started this study in February of this year. We are making our way to the end of the book. So today's passage for us is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. And in the middle of that, we're going to hear Paul the Apostle as he's writing to the Christian believers in Corinth about this collection or this offering that they're taking. Now, I need to say this from the outset. This service, although it is about money, it is not about money. It is about collecting money from some people to then use it to help other people. This is not what this, service is, or this sermon is going to be about. Does that make sense to you? I hope it'll be more clear when I'm done. But if you're already like, if the hairs on your neck are standing up, you're like, aha, here it is. I knew it. One day they're going to ask me for my money. I promise you today is not today. <laughs> so anyways, let's read verses. It might be next week. We haven't decided. <laughs> so if you have a Bible with you, turn with me. First Corinthians 16. Underneath the seat around you, there's a hardback black Bible. You can turn to page 962 in that Bible. Maybe you have a smart device or something. You can turn there. Um, but for everyone else, we'll put words up on the screen and you can follow along there. Here, starting chapter 16, verse 1. And Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints. This is the offering that I mentioned. Now I've directed the other churches of Galatia, so you also are to do this. Now on the first day of the week, or the first day of every week, he says, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collection when I come. Now, pause real quick. Um, we have to remember this point. Paul is going to make his way to Corinth, where these Christians are, but until he gets there, he's written them this letter. He's talking to them about some things before he gets there, but his hope is to one day arrive there. So he says, before I get there, make sure you guys take the collection, because I don't want to do it when we get there. Verse 3, now when I arrive, I'm going to send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. That's our work today, those four little short verses. And some of you are thinking, wow, we're going to get out early today. Ha, ha, ha. No, I'm not going to do that. So, um, but I do want to pray for us. Okay, I'm praying um, continuing to pray again that God would help us in some way that makes a difference for us. 
I say this most weeks, it's not just about intellectual knowledge. It's not ascending to some idea of God and or Jesus intellectually, but that somehow God through his spirit would do something inside of us that just radically transforms our lives. And you know it's so because the people around you go, you're different. So that's what I pray for you, that you'd become different. In fact, I'll say this, the Bible would call us peculiar people. So I pray that you be peculiar, yes? All right, let's pray together. God, help us to understand what you want us to see today. That even in the midst of this discussion of collections and money, there's a, there's a heart issue at work. There's something else that you're trying to help us see and understand that you are doing so to the Corinthians, and I believe you are even doing so to us. God, I pray that you bless our time together, that we have already been singing of the great works that you do through your son, Jesus. May we also see the great works that you have done through your son, Jesus, in our study today. And then may we go out of here remembering all of the things that we talked about. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would come and be with us, that our eyes would be opened to see, our ears would be opened to hear, and our hearts would would be fertile to accept the seed that you're planting inside of them. God, we thank you for everything that you do, and it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen? Amen. Paul begins, verse 1, with these words, now concerning now, concerning. Now, may I remind you, this is a letter that Paul has written to the church in Corinth, and it appears to be, most scholars would agree, that it appears to be a response of sorts that Paul is um, writing back to them because they had written him a letter, or somebody had come to Paul with some questions about some things. In fact, this is the fifth such occasion that Paul has began a portion of this letter with now concerning, which makes us believe that he's actually responding to something that they asked him about. Paul, what about this collection that the people in the church keep talking about? What about this gift that you're going to give to the people in Jerusalem? What's going on with all of that? Are you taking that? Are we supposed to send that? You know, snail mail? How does this whole thing work out? And so the, Paul is responding to their question, it, it appears to us. And he says, now concerning this, that this collection for the saints, and that's the language that he uses to talk about it. So maybe it'd be helpful for us, and, and I always want to be mindful of the person here who maybe doesn't have a church background, kind of like me when I first came to church. So hear this when I say this. Um, when Paul is using the word saint, he's not using it like you might see it defined on that treasure trove of truth, Wikipedia, that says this, that it is someone who's uh, set apart from everyone else, that's extremely holy and extremely close to God. There are some organized religions out there who, who give sainthood to some people only if they've lived a really good, perfect life and they take a vote in some dark room somewhere and say, okay, now this guy's a saint, right? Only after they die, by the way. To become a saint, you have to die first, which I think just blows, just for the record. <laughs> so anyways, so here's the deal though. Paul's not using the language that way. When he says that there's a collection for the saints, he's actually talking about Believers, He's talking about Christians. In fact, wait for it. I hope you're sitting down. He'd be talking about people like you. Talking about people like me, saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who were probably Jewish maybe to begin with, became Christians through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe worshipped another God. Maybe didn't worship God at all. And through Jesus Christ have become believers. And Paul uses this theological language of saintliness. 
take a collection for the saints. So I want you to know this is normal people like you and me. There's no extra classification of people in the church like that. And if you grew up in a church that had that sort of thing in it, um, God bless you. But um, Paul's not using that type of language. He's talking about us, normal people like us, yes? So every person who believes. And we see this collection that Paul's taking from a number of different vantage points in the New Testament. So Paul is writing about this collection here in 1 Corinthians. He also writes about it in 2 Corinthians, and he writes about it again in the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 15, he adds a word to saints. He uses the word poor. So he's talking about a collection. This is why this makes sense to us. For poor believers in Jerusalem. And he's been talking about this collection to all of the churches that he's been traveling to on his missionary journey. At each church, he goes and says, hey, there are a bunch of people in need back in Jerusalem. Would you mind helping them? And he asks for a collection from every church. And he's asked for a collection even from the church in Corinth, which begs the question, why in fact are the people poor in Jerusalem? What has caused that to happen? Now this, for the record, right, the Bible's over there. I'm going to stand over here because I'm gonna, we're going to conjecture for a moment. What has caused the people in Jerusalem, the believers in Jerusalem, to become poor? Well, Acts, the book of Acts tells us that when the gospel of Jesus began to spread, a lot of the early adopters or believers were in fact widows. So you can imagine in that culture, that's very patriarchal, if a widow did not have a husband, someone to provide for them, that they would be at the lower class of the socioeconomic status, so to speak. So the church is filled up with a lot of widows, and many of them don't have much money, for sure. But secondarily, there appeared to be a famine, history tells us, that has swept through Palestine at this time, and that's possibly why they're also poor as well. And I'll add another one. Those two I got in the Smarty books. This is just me. So you can throw this one away if you want. This is just me. I think there's something else at work here as well. I think the Christians, when they come to faith, particularly in Jerusalem, which is the capital city for the Jewish nation, Israel, yes? They were facing persecution. And they were being ostracized in all things, that they are enduring more suffering and difficulties in life than maybe the normal person. In fact, may I remind you, it was Paul himself who levied persecution against the church. Do you remember this? Paul said no one hated the church more than him. In fact, he oversaw the arrest and even murder of some Christians because he hated the followers of Jesus so much. But wait, I thought, you said, I thought you said Paul's writing this letter to Christians trying to encourage Christians. You're, you're implying that somehow Paul's a Christian now too. He is, and you know why he's a Christian now? It's because he met Jesus. He didn't meet a theology. He didn't meet doctrine. He didn't meet legalism. He didn't meet anything. He met Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead on a, on a road to Damascus. Just think Saragoro. I don't know, Jesus, on a road somewhere <laughs> or to nowhere. That's what that means. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Let's go. So anyways, I'm not scared of you. I'm just saying. And he encounters Jesus and his life is changed. And the persecution from Paul's perspective ceases. 
And no longer is he striving to punish those people. He joins them. I wonder, okay, this is me. I wonder if Paul doesn't have some shame or guilt associated with this. I, I, I don't want to overread here, but this, I, I'm a, I'm not an anthropologist, but I, I, I like to watch people, right? I'm a people watcher. Anyone else? I go to the state fair for that alone. Well, and corn dogs, just, but those two things, <laughs> corn dogs and people watching. And I know people enough to know this, that people do the strangest things when they feel shame and guilt, when they're trying to atone for their ways, when they're trying to apologize for something they have said or done. And anyone? So I wonder if that's what Paul is doing. I don't know. I don't, again, I don't, I don't read about this in the smart books, the, the, the commentaries from other people, but I, but I think about this. I wonder if you and I would think about something even now that we're trying to make retribution for, that we're trying to go back and redo when, when I hear, I love you so much, but the past is but the past. And in Christ Jesus, who, who tells us that God looks at us no more as people who sin, right? Because we're all sinners. So as God looks at our past, he says this, I don't see your sin in your life any longer. In fact, it, your sin, he says, has been cast as far as the east is from the west. Which cosmologists would tell us this, um, that the universe is ever expanding. Did you know that? I mean, it's continuing to grow even while we sit here right now. Although I say this just to labor into this point. Your sin is actually moving further and further away from you as we sit here. <laughs> as God says, it's the furthest from the east is from the west. Even, even now, as I speak these words, God is not seeing your sin any longer. So I wonder if God is going to look at our sin that way, then why don't we? There's this, I've been calling it luggage. I have no other language for it. But there's this luggage that we, we bring in with us every week to church as if we're boarding an airplane and we're looking for an overhead bin to stuff it into. And we put it there for a while. We have the flight. Yay, we have a service. 75 minutes later, we're all released to go eat tacos or whatever we do. And rather than leave our baggage here, <laughs> we wait in line to get it down and take it with us again. I would just say this to you, that, that God through Jesus Christ is willing to um, remove your sins from you. You should let him remove your sins from you. <laughs> let him do that for you. That's, this is maybe the second or third week that I've said that. I wonder if the Lord isn't really trying to remind some people of that. And by people, I mean me. Oh. This collection for the saints maybe is because of shame or guilt. Who knows? But we do know because of what Paul has said that there are in fact two other things for sure at work. 
Number one, he really wants to help needful people, which tells us something about the Christian experience, that we're not just about us, but we should be about others. And Paul makes mention of that. I'm going to take a collection, and we're going to help the needy, the poor in Jerusalem. And we're doing so because, well, frankly, we can because they can't help themselves. And the life of a Christian should look like that, that we should be looking for ways to help others. For those of us who have more could give to some that have little or none. In fact, the Bible talks about Jesus this way. He was rich who became poor for us, right? So he had all the wealth, the riches of heaven, so to speak, and he made himself poor, coming to earth, clothing himself in this, in flesh, which we'll celebrate in a few weeks. Merry Christmas, right? The birth of Jesus in a manger. But Christ is our example here. He helps those people in need. So there is that, and there's also something else at work here as well. It appears that Paul is trying to bring unity between uh, Gentile believers and Jewish believers. Uh, okay, here we go. What does all of that mean? It just simply means this. There are many people who were Jewish first, as I've mentioned, who came to faith in Jesus and became Christians. And there were other people that didn't, weren't Jewish, maybe worshiped other gods, but also became Christians. And they're all Christians now, but there seems to be some disunity between them two, particularly, as you can imagine, in the capital city of Israel, Jerusalem. And so what he's trying to see is like, listen, I'm out here in, in other parts of Asia Minor. I'm in Galatia. I'm in Turkey. I'm in other places. I'm in Greece here in Corinth. We're going to collect a bunch of money from all of us Gentiles, right, is what he would say. And we're going to send it to the church in Jerusalem, hoping to bring unity between those two groups of people. See, the backstory in this is that the Jewish people believed that for a Gentile and non-Jewish person to become a Christian, they thought that they had to become Jewish first and then become a Christian. So for all the guys, listen up. It just meant this, that you had to have been circumcised to be Jewish. So if you're going to be a Christian, they were arguing that some people had to be, the men in particular, had to be circumcised before you could be a Christian. For the record, if that's the onboard ramp, I'm out. I'm just saying. <laughs> like... Like, if this is the cost and I get to pick, probably not. Just saying, right? But that, that was what they were thinking. There's this big debate between them. They're not really believers because they need to be Jewish first. Now, now Paul disagrees with all that. I'm not even going to bore you with the details. But the theology would point that that's not true. The reason a person's a Christian is because they have faith to believe in, in Jesus Christ. It's through faith alone. By grace, it's freely given to us. That's it. It's not this other stuff. It's not works. It's not whether you're circumcised or not. It's not whether you wear the right clothes or not. It's not whether you read the same version of the Bible or not. It's not whether you go to the 8 o'clock, the 9.30, or the 10.40, or the 11 o'clock, right? It's none of those things that make you a Christian. And yet they were arguing amongst... Now, I know this is not the same thing, but I think we do that in our world today, too. That those of us who are believers, yay, Team Jesus, yay, all of us, yay, we love what we have in Christ. We love the things that we get to do and experience in church. We love how God has transformed our lives. And we see people sort of darken our door every once in a while, wander in. And you know they're visitors, right? Because they walk around like this. I don't know how to get in this place. I have no idea. Is there a bathroom here? I have no idea if there's a bathroom. 
Just for the record, we have one bathroom. Right? There's a long line, and it's back here. And we watch those people come in, and they come in the second week, and we go, man, they... They don't appear to be any different than they were the week before. They're still wearing those clothes and they're still talking that way and they're still smoking that stuff. And they're still, and they, we go through all the things in our mind somehow that we've got to like make them act a certain way so that they can be a Christian. Is this resonating with anyone? This is probably so not an issue at this church. Maybe I don't even need to talk about this. Somebody once complained there were too many people smoking outside the front doors of the church. What should we do, Jeff? Well, Pastor Jeff, because I'm in charge, I guess, of the smokers. So, <laughs> what on earth? Should we put up a sign? Should we this and that? I'm like, well, let's start with ashtrays, because I do not want to pick up cigarette butts. What? Ashtrays? I'm like, well, yeah, if they're gonna, where, where are they going to put their cigarette butts if they're smoking outside the church? <laughs> we need an ashtray. Oh, this, the person's head went, <laughs> there is no framework for this type of Christianity. <laughs> it was like a whole next level for this guy. And Paul's desperate for the uber-religious one. I, I, he loves them. Christ died for them. He, he loves them. He, yes, you can be uber-religious. Just for the record, if, if, the, if the Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, then let's say the Jewish person doesn't have to be Gentile to become a Christian either. So for the, the uber-religious person, the guy who loves all the stuff to do, right? That's fine. They want to continue doing the stuff. It doesn't earn them salvation, but if they want to continue the, the rite of circumcision and the temple sacrifice, if they want to, that's fine, okay? But we don't need to place that upon other people. And I think the argument would be for us too. If we want those things, have at them. Like if you were raised in a tradition that you just should probably not wear jeans to church, then don't wear jeans to church. I'm not going to cause you to sin and wearing jeans. I mean, whatever feels best for you. You see what I'm saying? I, I can move on, but is it, are we okay? <laughs> for the record, that's been one verse so far. I still have three left, baby. I still have three. <laughs> Did you see this? Anyways. <laughs> All right, moving on. Here we go. Verse two. And he said on the very first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. I think Paul's alluding to this reality. He's like, listen, um, it's probably best to not belabor all the work of the collecting if we just sort of, you know, meet it out in little bitty sections. So every week, just grab a little bit of it and grab a little bit of it and grab a little bit. And when I, when I come, then we can just collect it all and then I can take it with me. Rather than when Paul arrives and says, all right, everybody, let's collect. Let's come on, everybody collect, let's collect. Right, he just thought it'd be a lot easier to do it that way. Secondarily, I think a side blessing of this thing is that you'll probably gain more money if you do just a little bit 
every week instead of just one big push at the end. Because that's the day, if you're like me, you show up without your pocketbook or your wallet, right? And you're like, dang it, I would have gave last week, but Paul wasn't here. So, so there's that whole type of thing. But he mentions that it's on the first day of every week. Now, this is you. I'm a nerd when it comes to little details like this in Scripture. This is one of three occasions in all of the New Testament where the believers in Christ are said to have gathered for fellowship and worship on the first day of the week. Now, so what, Jeff? So what does that mean? It, it really means something to us if you understand that, that um, originally the Jewish people who worshiped God, they did so on the last day of the week, which was Saturday. But for some reason, spoiler alert, for some reason, um, the Christians moved their day of worship and fellowship to Sunday instead of Saturday. Now, any, any ideas why they did this? Well, I'll tell you, it's because Christ Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. So when they, when they ran to the tomb on that Easter morning and saw the tomb was empty, they moved their day of worship and fellowship from Saturday to Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Now, it seems like an insignificant thing, but oh, as we've been discussing these last many weeks, the resurrection of Christ Jesus is anything but insignificant. It is everything to us. In fact, they moved their entire day of worship. Know this, they had been worshiping, the Jewish people in particular, on Sabbath, the Saturday, for millennia. I'm talking century upon century upon century upon century. Nothing can change that but a miracle. I'm not trying to oversell the resurrection of Christ, but do you think if it was just a make-believe story or maybe some people hallucinated that Jesus was maybe raised from the dead, do you think an entire group of people would change their day of worship that their forefathers have been worshiping on for centuries based on this hokey idea that maybe he raised from the dead? No. That's the answer. No. It's because it's a real event. He says, each of you is to put something. What does it say? It says, each of you. And I love this. He doesn't say, what? he says everyone, but he doesn't say everyone has to put in a certain amount. Like he does, okay, everyone put in five bucks. We call that a cover charge, right? <laughs> But that's not what this is. That's not what's happening here. He's like, the church gathers for fellowship, for worship, and then every person would, would contribute, is what Paul is alluding to here for the, for the Corinthians, that they should. And, and he doesn't even spell out like the amount, nor, listen, nor does he spell out a percentage. Okay, if you're, if you're familiar with Old, Old Testament law that the believers were supposed to give a tenth or a tithe of their gain from the harvest or from their sale of their property or whatever, 10% of that went to the, the temple or the priesthood and all that stuff to support the priests. But Paul did, makes no mention of that, which I find somewhat liberating and yet frustrating. I mean, how many of us would just rather God tell us how much to give? <laughs> and then we could just write the check and move on. And I think that's precisely why God doesn't tell us how much to give because he doesn't want us to just write the check and move on. He, he says, I want you to, to consider how you've prospered. That's the language Paul uses, that he prospers you 
And however God prospers you, you set aside some of that money every week, put it in a collection, okay? And then when I gather, we're going to take it and we're going to help people down in Jerusalem. We're going to unify the people down, the whole thing. But he never says specifically how much. But he says everyone should. Now, to take this out of a, a monetary discussion, it's not just how God blesses you with, with finances, which I think is a great thing that God does, yes? But if you're poor, can you, can you hear me when I say this? If you're struggling financially, hear me. It does not mean you're doing Christianity wrong. It doesn't mean that. There is a gospel out there that says things like that. And, and that gospel's, I don't know, garbage? Untrue? Anti-Christian? That's not, listen, there are poor believers in Jerusalem. Are they doing it wrong? No. So if it's not money, what if it's, I guess Paul points to this reality. It is God who prospers, so he prospers financially, but he prospers us in other things besides finances, yes? How many of us have been able to have some semblance of joy in our lives when it feels like the, the wheels are coming off of the cart? When everything is literally falling apart around you, you've ha you have this settledness of joy or peace that others around you can't fathom. They're going, why are you losing your ever-loving mind right now? Because God not only prospers us in the things of finances and family, but he prospers us in joy and peace as well. I want to finish with this because I'm out of time. And I did not plan on sharing this. This is not in my notes. I, this just feels right. You know how much better this church would be if you guys gave of the things that you've been prospered in? Hear me, and I'm not even talking about money. I don't care. There's a song I used to listen to when I first became a Christian. It had a line in it that said this. I used to think the cattle on a thousand hills wasn't enough to pay my bills. It just says this, God owns it all. And for whatever reason, I used to think that that wasn't enough for me. <laughs> it's enough for us. The church will be fine without your money. I'm not... I have, I'm, I'm like, this is a faith moment. It will be fine. God moves finances around. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about this. What if he prospers you in things like joy and faith and perseverance, these other gifts from the spirit? What if you began to use them in the church? And so the person sitting next to you, who's going through a very difficult time, what if you came alongside them and encouraged them? I gave them, by giving them something that you have an abundance of. I have faith for you. I'll pray for you. Is that what you need? I'd gladly do that for you. You know how much better off this church would be if we just lived that way? So I said earlier, this, this message isn't about money, but it's about the principles. That Paul wants the believers to help, the, pe the believers who have, to help those who don't. I find no other reason than, than that for gathering together. A lot of times people tell me, Jeff, I don't need to go to church. I mean, what with the internets and all <laughs> is typically how that goes. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay. 
go gain you some knowledge. Go get yourself some intellect. That's fine. But not me. I mean, I, I, no one, okay, this pride, pride moment. No one listens to more podcasts than me. <laughs> okay? I get it. I do the online stuff. I do it. But I would never forsake the gathering together of the church. I need you on some days more than you could possibly imagine. In fact, if I could be honest with you, I, I could use a lot of help right now in my life. I should say that. If I was doing this at home in my living room, which is what some people like to call it, living room church, <laughs> this is not hyperbole. I think I'd be dead by now. I mean that. I don't know that I'd be living right now if it wasn't for the church, if it wasn't for believers helping other believers to do I had a really cool close from my sermon that I was going to share. Um, in fact, I'm convinced most of you would get resaved if I was to preach that close. But <laughs> but we're out of time. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that um, in the heart of Paul's, you know, instruction to the church in Corinth, we saw the heart of God in that. That through the the ability of the churches in Galatia and Ephesus and, and Corinth, you were going to bring help to a group of people that couldn't help themselves. And God, I, ha I can't help but even think about our own lives. As Jesus, as we've already said, left the riches of heaven and came to help us when we couldn't even help ourselves. You see, our greatest need, God, is not that we have more finances, maybe even more peace or joy, God. What we really need is the forgiveness of sins. What we really need, God, is a, a unity between us and you, the Father, again. And we can't have that but for Jesus. We can't ever find our way to where you are but through Jesus. So God, we thank you that we can come together and hear that message again. God, would you make Jesus real to us? In fact, if you're in the room here today and that's your prayer, like just say it again in your mind. Just say this. God, would you make Jesus real to me? I need a savior. I've tried my way so many times. God, please, please help me. And God who gives faith, God, give us faith to believe in that and transform our life. 
God, we thank you for what you've begun in our lives. We thank you for what you're continuing to do. God, I pray that you always and forever make us a church who proclaims the truth of Jesus, how much he loves his people, and that they could have unity and eternity with you forever through him alone. God, I thank you for that. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message was an encouragement to you. Walking in faith can be difficult, but we are constantly working to remind people of the truth and love of Jesus, and we want you to be a part of that. So head over to our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram, or connect with us online at renaissancedecatur.org and help us make a difference in the heart of our city.